0: We didn't really introduce ourselves, should we? Y'all could, they know who I am. They know me.
1: Welcome to Hashing It Out, where we talk about Web3, blockchain infrastructure, the people who build it, and why they build it. I'm your first host, Dr. Corey Petty.
2: And I'm Jesse Santiago. Welcome to Hashing It Out. This episode is all about blockchain hardware, how it got started, and where we are now. Dee Ferguson here. We'll be talking
0: to TrueBlock's founder, DJ Rush.
3: I love everything about the technology other than all the things that I talk about.
0: And president of Vulcanize, Rick Dudley.
4: I'm going to go on a slight tangent here.
5: This episode of Hashing It Out is sponsored by Zengo. With a Zengo crypto wallet, you can buy, trade, and earn up to 8% interest on crypto assets while enjoying 24-7 customer support. And no more private keys with Zengo. You'll get two mathematical secret shares, one stored on your mobile device, the other on the Zen Go server. With no single point of failure, if something happens to one of your shares, your crypto is still safe. Download the Zen Go app and use the code TRADEZEN at sign up to get $10 back on your first purchase. Music in this episode composed by Nate Ferguson.
1: We wanted to try and suss out this change from the original narrative of Bitcoin, which was like one CPU, one vote. And like people running a bunch of stuff at home and how everyone participates in these networks, like commensurate to their ability to, you know, have one CPU or multiple CPUs to where we are today, which is drastically different. What's your take on that? Like, how how do you see the evolution of of starting from this concept of one CPU, one vote in the In the hardware implications of that to what it means to even run infrastructure today?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think one CPU, one vote was a great um, idea. It was a great aspiration, a great hope, a great um, narrative. But I don't think it was ever really thought through all the way, or very early on, it was clear that that wasn't going to work and that there would be centralized um, parties that were basically like banks. I know there's somewhere in Bitcoin talk, Cal Finney talks about Bitcoin banks. Um, So I think that even though you could run Bitcoin nodes for a while as an individual, uh, either doing CPU mining or GPU mining, and eventually FPGA mining was even, um, I think, achievable by the uh, end user. Like before the Butterfly Lab stuff, I I wasn't paying that close attention at that time, so I don't know the exact dates. But after that, I think the idea of individuals... Um, having reasonable mining operations kind of went out the window and yeah why do i think that happened ultimately it was like i don't want to say it was bad design i would say it was like more aspirational than like it was more of an aspirational thing because i think the design it's sort of obvious from the design i mean the second or third comment in the original um, cypherpunk mailing list is you're going to you know boil all the oceans with this thing so people kind of knew right away that it didn't make a lot of sense
0: T.J. Rush got his first computer in 1982, but 2016 is when he discovered Ethereum.
1: How'd that change over the years, right? Because I remember when Ethereum started, you ran Mist and running a node on your laptop or machine or whatever was relatively straightforward and simple. Um, That's not the case today. And it's certainly not the case. It's certainly differentiated from when we started in Bitcoin and running a full Bitcoin node on your laptop was easy and you can mine. So like, walk us through like your path in trying to run this infrastructure locally and build local first applications and how that's changed throughout, like just your, your experience in this ecosystem.
3: So, you know, the first, the first thing that you had to do was run mist, you would download mist and run mist and it was called a, a web three browser. And inside of mist, it started up the, the, um, guest node basically. So it had its own. API endpoint called localhost 8545, which served the RPC to Mist. So that was in maybe March of 2016, maybe February, March of 2016. And it took about, you know, a day or half a day to start a brand new installation of Mist. And then, you know, fast forward to about um, late 2016 and it's starting to take, and there was this really huge, um, DDoS attack in October of 2016. And what happened is someone created about 20 million accounts over a 10, 20 day period. And then they had to clean up that DDoS, which was another 20 million uh, deletions of accounts. So what happened is the synchronization of the node went from kind of like this, it was like growing, and then it went straight up kind of. So it went from a day, a day and a half, two days three days and then everybody started complaining about keeping this node in sync with the network and i remember joe lubin and consensus in new york were writing all kinds of different pieces of software 20 30 different projects going on and every one of them was struggling to get users because they'd have to tell them get the mist browser synchronized for five days and everybody's like what the hell are you talking about so um Joe Lubin's solution was a reasonable one, which is he's going to stand up in Fura for everyone so that people don't have to synchronize the node and they don't have to um, worry about that whole thing. And I remember thinking at the time, and I even said this on Twitter, probably you can find it somewhere. That's a really bad idea. That's a That's a bad idea because what you're doing is you're literally destroying exactly the thing that a decentralized network is, which is you know, local node software running locally. And it's turned out exactly as I kind of thought it was gonna turn out, which is no one runs a node. Because, not because they don't want to, not because they don't think it's interesting, because they don't have to. Like, why would they run a node? There's no reason whatsoever to run a node. So, um, now I actually don't agree with that. I think there's a huge number of reasons to run a node, but, uh, the community doesn't seem to think that that's true anymore.
0: Do you do you think that the hardware limitations are what make it so easy for a consumer or user to say like, yeah, I don't have to do that?
3: There's a whole bunch of reasons. That's certainly one of them. It's like the requirement on the hardware is onerous. It's It's really difficult. It's also, you don't have to. It's like there's no impetus to do it, but... For me, what that does is it changes the nature of the um, of the possibilities that you have uh, because Infura is shared among 100,000 people or, or I don't even know how many people per minute or whatever. So no matter how much resources Infura has, they're incentivized to deliver as little bandwidth as possible to each individual user because they wanna keep their costs down. So what happens is you get application software that can't really operate the way a fully local piece of software would operate if you had a local node. So when I run Trueblocks, which is my project, I'm running against a local node. I hit the node 20,000 times a second or however many times. I don't know exactly, but 100 times more frequently than anyone can hit Infura without getting rate limited. So the nature of the application that you can build when you have a local node is just a completely different thing than the nature of the application you build when you're hitting a shared resource like Infura. And that, to me, is what it means to be decentralized. It's decentralized. So, So the benefit of running a node locally, to me, is speed and not sharing and not being rate limited and not paying $350 a month if I want access to every piece of data on the chain, which I have to do if I use Infura, I don't have to do if I'm running my own local node. But all of those things go away and people's attitude towards what kinds of things we can build, they, they just atrophy, they just disappear. People don't even imagine a possibility of building a different kind of application. That, that to me is the worst outcome of Infura. And I don't mean to hit a hit upon Infura. It's just the nature of the world. It's like it just happened.
1: Oh well, yeah. If you use Infura as the the like canonical example of centralization, right? There's this new friction that we're introducing with this decentralized network, which is running your own node. You got to go buy a piece of hardware that maybe is larger than your laptop. You got to, you got to, you know, provision it, make sure it's set up correctly. You got to make sure it's online. make sure you have enough bandwidth. And those things have changed over the years in terms of the requirements to do so. So instead of that, in lieu of that, we'll do it for you. That's right. And there's, there's a trade-off there. And you mentioned one of those trade-offs just now, which is, um, you get rate limited. So it's within their benefit to minimize costs, to serve you just as much as they have to in order for things to work. And that limits creativity in building applications. That's exactly right.
5: With a ZenGo crypto wallet, you can buy, trade, and earn up to 8% interest on crypto assets, while enjoying 24-7 customer support. And no more private keys. With ZenGo, you'll get two mathematical secret shares, one stored on your mobile device, the other on the Zen Go server. Download the Zen Go app and use the code TRADEZEN at sign up to get $10 back on your first purchase.
2: What did you use to, to for pulled storage?
3: Um, there was a I don't know the technical details. I'm not terribly technical with the hardware, but it was a RAID zero um, thing, and I had I had actually two Linux boxes, the same the same machines. So, um, this was Open Ethereum, and at the time, this was now about 2020. So, um, Open Ethereum was taking up 12 terabytes because I run, my software wants to look at the history of every address. So I'm running an archive node and I'm enabling tracing. So it's actually the worst case scenario for the disk size. It's not true of like a regular user who would just run the front of the chain. So I'm a totally different animal there. But then you start looking at Aragon and Aragon, the the node software called Aragon, this is all Ethereum mainnet, by the way. I'm not too knowledgeable about other chains, but Aragon, takes a 12 terabyte database and turns it into a 1.1 terabyte database and i can get exactly the same data from that from that node software as i could get from open ethereum and i'm first of all i'm like that is absolutely not possible to do but he did it I, so i don't know i don't know what magic he did inside of his code but he kind of set back the clock like probably 5 years on the on this issue of how hard it is to run a node so all the other node software if i understand it right now for an for an archive node is still 12 or 13 or 14 terabytes which if you think about it from an infuras perspective that's a disaster for them as well you know they can't be running separate nodes they're not putting 14 terabytes of data on every one of their endpoints there's no way so what they've actually created is some piece of software that stands in front of the node, and you're not even actually getting access to the node. You're getting access to Infura's version of the node, which to me is literally Google. It's literally Google. But so Aragon comes out and kind of saves the day, right? They they, they push 12 terabytes back down to one and a half terabytes, and it's now grown to about, one, about two terabytes now. So I have... I have like eight extra terabytes or 10 extra terabytes on my machine. So I'm happily just running along for a couple of years uh, without having to worry about it, I hope. But let me say another thing. Now comes Ethereum 2. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, now I, have, I can't even use Ethereum 1 clients without running Ethereum 2 as well. So it just got twice as hard, not only for me, but also for Infura. Just got twice as hard if they're going to um, run these notes. So I think what happens is people, they, um, I mean, they have other priorities, is the, is the thing. They just don't have the priority that says run local notes. That's just not a priority. And to me, it's, it's literally the only thing that we all need to do. And I'm probably crazy, but I don't know. What do, you, do you guys think it's necessary for people to run nodes? or is that kind of a radical idea?
2: I run my own nodes. I have a server.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Corey. Corey does it too.
1: Oh yeah. I run I run a bunch of different nodes for different chains and different services. You run an archive? Yeah, I have a I have an air since Aragon, I have an Archive node. Aragon made it very simple to um, provision consumer hardware to run nodes. And that was one of the things that like I think is difficult for people is not only like some people don't have access to these, these, this consumer hardware to run a node. And, and most circumstances, even if you take like, I don't know, the EVM scales kind of terribly in terms of resource costs as it grows. Um, Bitcoin is really good in terms of scaling resource costs if you take out proof of work, but like the success of a network, uh, increases the computational costs in most cases of running the network. So people who get excited in the early days, um, run things on whatever hardware they have available to them. Like right now you can run, at least with Nimbus, you can run Ethereum 2 on a on a Raspberry Pi. That is not advisable because eventually you're not going to be able to do that. Right. And so you have to go out and buy new read buy new computers and so on and so forth. And so we have this situation that I find interesting that I I think it's very important that people run their own nodes. But I'm also realistic in the fact that some people don't have access to these things. They're not easy to provision today. So like getting your node, buying the computer's cool. Getting it synced, like installing the software, getting the chain synced, making sure it's up, making sure it's up to date, getting notifications that you need to make an update, et cetera. That's all cognitive load and skills that some people don't have. Yeah. And that, that makes it more difficult yeah. or they don't have access to the hardware to keep up or they buy it and then they can't actively grow it. Right. Cause like there's, there's been circumstances where like I have a hard drive and I used it and then the chain fills it up and then I have to figure out how to migrate it. Yeah. And that's like the way to start over. That's annoying. Yeah. And so I, I think that's interesting, right? These computers that we have to run these nodes, and it's very important if we want these networks to be different in any way from the internet that they set out to kind of replace or or transform or change, we need people to take responsibility by running their own nodes so we can build new types of software like the original internet, but it's hard. And I don't know, just by experiencing it from beginning of Bitcoin to today. And you look at the different available chains outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum, like Algorand, Avalanche, like Cosmos, Polkadot, like all these different chains, they all have their own computational complexity and computational resources to run these things. And if you want to participate in a multi-chain world, then you need to run all of them. And so like, are we expecting people to have server rooms? Yeah. That's and crazy. like, all gigabit bandwidth? Rick
0: Dudley says there is a solution to reduce the amount of hardware you need to run multiple chains.
4: So I think um, I had an argument in when I worked at Consensus in 2015, um, and we were talking about civil resistance and proof of stake and all these things. And I think I think that's what the conversation was about. And I was like, well, guys, money is centralizing. If, if you don't want a centralized system, don't allow people to buy the tokens, Like right? That's actually the solution. Just don't, literally just don't sell them, like distribute them some other way. Otherwise, you're always gonna have the central influence of money. There's billionaires, right? A billionaire has billions of dollars. There are people who have no dollars. They're gonna have billions of times more power um, in the system. So so money is centralizing, right? So as long as people can buy hardware, um, then it's gonna be, you know, money's gonna be centralizing. Um I think we can build systems um, so that's one comment. I guess the other comment is state growth in ethereum is a is a mistake, right It's a um, it the design was supposed to have checkpointing and truncation and we still argue about adding that into the network on a fairly regular basis um, so um, so yeah, so that's I, I mean, we can build blockchains today that use checkpoints that have uh, that have a fixed size um, of their state, and then uh, I forget that they keep they change the name of it, but I think it's called uh, Mira. Now um, is is an extreme version of this, where their blockchain stays the exact same size as like some number of kilobits, which I think is way too small. But uh, you could make it any arbitrary size. You can make it. 500 gigs, three terabytes. I mean, you could make it whatever you wanted. Um, and we just, and we have the technology to do that. We know how to do that. People just haven't implemented it. I mean, we could implement that on Ethereum like today, basically. It's not, it's not super hard. So um, people just choose not to, not to implement that, which is, kind which is very annoying for me personally.
1: Why is it annoying? Is that like, you don't like the concept of, of, Like people don't like that because of the original narrative of of being able to build from Genesis with confidence and the uh, what's the word I'm looking for Um, counterparty risk of trusting other people for data. And I'd imagine those systems either get rid of the data they no longer think they need. So you can't do that or they use some form of cryptography to give you a different way of trusting the system.
4: Yeah, I mean, you would just use so it's the reason it's super annoying to me is because it doesn't fit into any data storage strategy that exists anywhere, right? Like, like librarians can't store data this way. Banks don't store data this way. Enterprises don't store data this way. No one stores an immediately available monotonically increasing data set. It's it. It doesn't make any sense. It's not, it's literally not operable. Like you can't run a system that works that way. We don't have infinite disks and, 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 you know, saying, oh, well, we're not, uh, you know, we're, we're growing slower than the rate of disks, um, you know, disk size increase, or, you know, like Moore's law applied to disks or whatever is like a bizarre cop-out, like just build a system that allows people to use, you know, offline data, near line data, far line data, blah, 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 which is like a well established enterprise practice. Um, and so it it it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you people are fake because you're not even addressing this like basic issue of how do I actually operate this blockchain as an operator.
0: So you mean to tell me for a while now we would we don't have to have like a super growing blockchain that grows forever and I have to like, you know constantly update my hard drive space and uh, like that's a thing that exists and we're just not doing
4: yeah i mean why would why would a client need to work that way so i mean yeah there's no does the data set increase over time the historic data set yes it does does the um uh, the state object that ethereum has for example does that grow over time that's harder to say because, in fact, it's very difficult to even meter or monitor that object. That's one of the things we do at my company. It's actually quite difficult to to know what the Ethereum state actually, the state object actually is. Um, but yeah, you could just say, OK, every year on Jan 1st, there's a block number. We pick that block number. We generate a checkpoint from that block number. And then a week later, we publish that that hash and we publish the state at that hash, and then we don't require the nodes to have any more data from the past. And people can just take that, put it on a tape drive, store it on a, you know, put it on ta- archival tape, store it on a tape. When they need to go get it, they can go into their closet, pull up the tape, put it the tape in the tape drive and do their thing. We could just be doing that at whatever frequency we wanted to every day, every year or whatever. And that, I mean, that's how real live, <laughs> production data sets actually work
0: so then i guess it goes to what what corey was saying is that at that point you've got to do you trust third parties do you trust like or you don't even need to really because if you're keeping your own archives
4: yeah exactly you just have your own i mean think about think about it this way i could just say we could just have said okay ethereum's never going to be bigger than 500 gigs right which you can fit on your pinky finger right i mean 500 gigs you can fit on an sd card right and you could say anytime we go over 500 gigs, you know we start we start this tape backup process, and we take a snapshot, and we build the tape backup, and then we add the checkpoint into the new chain, and you can truncate all that data. I've I've written, I mean, I've we've developed this multiple times at at Vulcanize, uh, different different times and different situations. So you can just truncate the blockchain.
5: With a ZenGo crypto wallet, you can buy, trade, and earn up to 8% interest on crypto assets while enjoying 24-7 customer support. And no more private keys. With ZenGo, you'll get two mathematical secret shares, one stored on your mobile device, the other on the ZenGo server. Download the ZenGo app and use the code TRADEZEN at sign up to get $10 back on your first purchase.
2: So uh, I'm running a I'm running a node for Avalanche. In fact, I just spun it up like a couple of days ago. And when you're talking about the problems associated with running nodes uh, in a home setting, it kind of like makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm aware of this. I just know that a lot of people um, are curious. They like like I'm curious to just play around with it. I'm wondering for blockchains to have real application for whatever somewhat idealistic but more practical applications for maybe not a global computer achieving global consensus where is the practical implementation and what is the what is the hardware that seems reasonable to be able to prescribe people to go out and buy and to learn, to maintain and, and just to, to, to participate.
4: Oh, you kind of mixed in a couple of different questions in there. I think you, I think you meant it as one question, but you, at the end, you sort of like split it in the, the last sentence, like split into three. So like, um, if you want to play around at your house with avalanche, then just buy the hardware to do that. That's fine. Just realize that eventually just naturally you're gonna have a very difficult time maintaining that node um, as your disk fills up, basically. And if you if you're not doing pool management, pool disk storage, you know, we use ZFS pools at, at Vulcanize. Um, so you with the ZFS pool you can do things to help, but ultimately um, yeah, and, and, and you could potentially, you know, run that for a very long time, like probably like 20 years or something and be fine. In terms of what you actually need to run a smaller chain, I mean, you need practically nothing. Um, you know, you could run it on the cheapest computer. You can, well, you know, like a Raspberry Pi or something. Like you can easily have a whole blockchain that all the nodes are just Raspberry Pis, and you have the same level of security that you have with Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, that's that's possible. Uh, we don't. I think. I think. Well, the the way that that would be possible would be to would be to um, manufacture a proprietary ASIC uh, and then distribute that proprietary ASIC uh, in a judicious way. And it would still be affordable. Um, And then basically when people finally crack your ASIC and start competing in the ASIC market, you either sue them, uh, which is, you know, not cool or whatever, but it would work. Or you release a new ASIC. Um, And that would work. I mean, depending on exactly what you're doing that that could be sustainable um because it may be that you have so many nodes um and you're not giving out rewards you're not giving out in crazy rewards that end up you know inflating in relation to the dollar in this crazy way um and so no one bothers to crack your asic i mean there's there's you know countless asics out there that have never been reverse engineered right so you could be running your, you know, you could say, okay, we're going to sell these ASICs. We're going to sell a hundred thousand of them. um, And you can order replacements from us for some period of time. And they cost five bucks and we only give, you know, one to one person and be mostly okay. Um, You can distribute them via lottery or something. I mean, there's all sorts of ways you could um, address that. Um, Add
2: in your hat, like as a happy meal toy
4: seriously i mean yeah uh um you know in one of those uh claw things where you have to get the the stuffed animal with the claw you could put them in there i mean you could distribute it any number of ways and it would be fine
2: is it worth creating like a system of people that are not economically incentivized to remove the um the interaction of permissionless and, and uh incentivization as a civil mechanism like is there a way to build i mean this is this is just nobody has this answer probably but are there better primitives in terms of civil defense mechanisms that there's like a little bit of economic gain but not entirely but something that just makes the whole thing more fun i guess
4: well you did it again so uh we could make a system that was that was fun and didn't really in the funness was sort of overwhelmed the economic benefit so the systems also it's funny i mean we've been talking for a while i personally don't believe that global permissionless systems make a lot of sense i again there's a very very narrow use case i think it's great for gun runners i think it's great for i mean i'm, I'm a black person in america you know uh, there's plenty of times where people should break the law um, I think it's an ethical thing to do um, but you know if you're not trying to break the law um, regardless of the ethics of it the 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 permissionless global transmission properties of Bitcoin are very weird uh, if I if I'm in a relationship a financial relationship with someone I know that counterparty I, I mean I'm transacting with that counterparty I don't need to be, incentivized outside of that transaction right if if i'm if i'm trying to ship products internationally uh, over the you know across the ocean or whatever and i need to use this uh a legal payment rail to do that uh i don't need to be incentivized to run the hardware any more than the incentivization i have of running my existing business so you don't you don't really need You know, the incentive structures that we have now are these sort of pyramid schemes because the chains themselves have no other utility. If I if I just wanted to use the chain to facilitate international business, which I think is a totally legitimate uh, use case, a killer use case for blockchains, I would say, hey, you know, shipping company A, shipping company B, shipping company C, all you guys do deals together, all you guys work together, you guys have the same customers, bring your customers together. And, you know, you work in the Pacific, you work in the Atlantic, like you guys don't really compete. Let's build a network together. I'll give you all the hardware, uh, you know, all the money that you have to pay and like all the all the lost opportunity, all the opportunity costs, all the legal costs, all the friction we're going to remove all of that by building our own little monetary system amongst the you know 27 of us or whatever and you guys give me you know a sliding scale percentage of that so that i'm not you know out here you know in dune land floating around on all my money um and and everything will be fine right and and I, and there's people who do build products like that right those products exist actually and they're not talked about like I was surprised. I talked with uh, one of the founders of skew chain and I, I had heard about skew chain many years prior uh, and I was like, wait, you're still, th- that project's still around. And they're like, yeah, we do billions of dollars a year or whatever. I was like shocked, right? Nobody cares about that stuff, but that is a perfect, legitimate small permission system that couldn't exist without blockchain technology is a financial application has benefits to its users and doesn't have any pyramid or Ponzi scheme notions uh, involved in it at all. Um, And I think generally speaking, proof of stake systems have this property. And this is actually why I'm interested in proof of stake. And so when people say, and, and and I believe that you should know your counterparties, right? So I imagine a proof of stake system has, you know, under 50 participants in it. They're all named, they all know each other. They're all comparable in some sense. They can't, it can't be like there's one overlord guy and then there's a bunch of peons. Like, that's obviously not gonna work. Like, they have to have some sort of quid pro, natural quid pro quo, but they are also trying to underwrite each other's transactions. Another example that I've worked with um, over the years was, uh, was um, uh, royalty organizations for, um, for music. So the people who buy and sell music rights and, and get paid publishing royalties. Um, it's like a really sharky business and they and they have all this weird horse trading BS that goes on and it's really inefficient. And it that's why if you're into music, you'll see music like pop in and out of uh, Spotify. Like the reason like sometimes you'll be able to listen to a song on Spotify and then like a week later you won't is because Spotify had the wrong royalty information in their system and, and there's no like global way. It's like a huge mess. A blockchain would sort all that stuff out. And it actually would solve a problem that they realized they had in the nineties and they didn't have a technical solution. Blockchain is a technical solution to that. So those are the types of, so I think that, yeah, you need something like Bitcoin. Um, and then you need a bunch of proof of stake systems, like, like million, literally millions of them. Um, and then they aggregate up and, and eventually they have an ultimate settlement layer. And so practically, I don't think that will be Bitcoin. I think it'll be Ethereum, but. Um, I think Ethereum will be this global settlement layer for these um, for this broad base of uh, millions and millions of proof-of-stake chains. You'll hear
0: more from Rick about the future of scale and economics in blockchain in part two of this episode.
2: Plus, how Dapnote got its start and what the future looks like to co-founder Eduardo Atunia and business and ecosystem lead, Paul Lansky. Part two
0: drops to August 21st. In the meantime, you can find Rick Dudley on Twitter at
2: afdudley0. Check out TJ Rush at TrueBlocks.io and Dapnode at
4: Dapnode.io.
0: Curtains. <laughs> Close
4: them.